I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. This episode is part of the silver lining theme in which I will try to explore some of the bright side of the COVID-19 crisis with some of my wisest friends. Today's guest is my dear friend and role model, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. Tal and I share the passion for using facts and science to explain topics such as happiness and leadership. We both go anywhere in the world, at least when we were allowed to go anywhere in the world to spread those positive messages. This is why we keep bumping into each other all over the world. And every time we do, we have a wonderful conversation. Tal, on the other hand, is a famous guru on the topic. So he taught two of the largest classes in the history of Harvard University on positive psychology and the psychology of leadership. Today, he lectures in Columbia University, but he also lectures around the world on topics like leadership, happiness, education, and mindfulness, among many others. He's the author of 10 books that have been translated into more than 25 languages, two of my favorites being The Joy of Leadership and Being Happy, definitely recommended as Goodreads for everyone. Tal is also a senior entrepreneur, so he's the co-founder and the chief learning officer of Happiness Studies Academy and uh, Potential Life, uh, which aim to educate us, to teach us on the topic of happiness, even to the level of an MBA degree in happiness. I have not heard of that before. So Tal, thank you so much for being here. Tell me, does happiness actually need an MBA? Is that something that we should make a prerequisite for our hires going forward? First of all, thank you, Mo. I'm so glad to be here. And uh, we haven't met in a while. Yeah, we were supposed to meet in March and we're now both grounded. Are you enjoying it, by the way? You know, I'm, I'm enjoying parts of it. So when people ask me, so Tal, how are you? I say, okay, all things considered. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I'm a bit more reckless with my happiness like that. When people tell me, when people ask me, how are you? I say, I've rarely been better. I mean, with all the compassion and empathy for people suffering, which in reality, if you ask me, is from a numbers point of view, not not as significant as the media makes it look. But every life is important. So I think we lost like 280,000 lives in a time frame where humanity lost four and a half million people. The coronavirus itself has not been the major cause of death so far, but it's definitely been a major cause of uh, economic downturn and suffering for a lot of people. You know, the idea you talk about the media, the media is, plays obviously a very important role here. And um, I think a lot of the pain that people go through is because they are quite literally glued to the media reports, to those graphs, forgetting that the media is not a mirror, meaning it's not a looking glass, but rather a magnifying glass. <laughs> That's a very good way of saying it, yeah. So what it does, is it magnifies whatever it's focused on. Right now, it's the coronavirus. And therefore, again, with all the tragedies associated, and God knows there are tragedies, it's magnified to the point that instills real fear and real suffering in people. And so what should people do? I mean, we need to stay informed somehow. Yeah, exactly. So this is really about finding the golden mean, 
in terms of, uh, you know, I'm not saying burying our head in the sand. That's certainly not the answer. That's also not the path to happiness. Check facing reality is, is critical to well-being. At the same time, not to be stuck. So I'll tell you what I do. Again, there's no science behind it, but I think a good rule of thumb. You know, I wake up in the morning, I do listen to the news. You want to find out what's going on in my area and the areas where my loved ones are. But then I'm off for a few hours where I work, where I talk to people, where I write. And then I check it again in the afternoon. And that is my quota of news for the day. It's not detaching myself, but at the same time, it's not 24-7 connected. And I was thinking about the importance of distraction in this environment. And uh, as you know from my lectures, I love to use quotes. So I was looking for quotes on distraction, and I found hundreds, if not thousands of quotes, none of them positive, all about the negative impact of distraction. Whereas I think in our context, distraction, distraction from what everyone and everything is talking about is actually important. Yeah, I remember that uh, video when Steve Jobs went back to Apple and said, here's to the crazy ones, <laughs> yes, the misfits, the ones that don't conform to the norm of life. I think in today's life to be distracted from the mean, from the norm of just being glued to negative news is, uh, is a good thing, I think. I, I couldn't agree more. Your whole work on positive psychology is really about focusing on what works, about directing your focus on things that actually work, that are good for you. How does this apply here? Yeah, so here's the thing. Do you remember the book, The Secret? Yeah, I remember that. The worst written book in history, but quite interesting as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice description, yes. yeah. So um, it's sold tens of millions of tens copies. Of millions, and ever yeah. since it, it came out, people have been asking me, what is your secret to happiness? And my immediate response is, come on, what do you think? I'm some new age self-help guru. I'm an academic. There's no secret to happiness. There are three secrets to happiness. Yes. <laughs> and here they are. At that point, everyone takes out their notebook in order to write the three secrets to happiness. So here they are. The first secret to happiness is reality. The second secret to happiness is reality. Mm -hmm. Want to guess the third secret to happiness? I uh, guess it's reality. You know, the last sentence in my book is exactly that. Surprisingly, I never heard you say this before. So the last sentence of Solve for Happy is, happiness is found in the truth. It really is that simple. It's all about reality, isn't it? Yes. But reality is harsh nowadays. Exactly. So here it is. Reality is harsh and reality is a blessing, is a miracle, is awe-inspiring. And what has happened and I'm talking pre-COVID-19, uh, what is happening now in the world is that the focus has primarily shifted to what is not working. You look at my field, the field of psychology, for every um, one article on well-being, there's something like 20 on, on depression, yeah, uh, hardship. And uh, it's very important to study depression and anxiety and PTSD. It is equally important to study joy, love, and happiness. So when I talk about reality, I'm talking about balancing the playing field. Yes, let's also, not only, but also focus on the things that are working in life. What are your strengths? What is going well in your relationship? Not just what is the problem in your relationship. What is going well in the world? Not just the problems in the world. And interestingly, when we also, not only, but also focus on what is working, uh, we get more of it. And we're in a better position to deal with what is not working. 
You know, Gandhi, when Nehru would ask, what is the most important thing that Gandhi did for India? That his answer was, Gandhi made India proud of itself. And that is important because, you know, of course, there were issues with India pre-1947, as there are today. You know, no perfect country, no perfect person. And yet Gandhi, being a great leader, focused on what is working rather than on what is not, because he knew that would be important for also dealing with what is not. But isn't that a no-brainer? I mean, when you say it, it's like so clear. You go to teen today, you know, teen suicide is at an all-time high, but there are teens that are prospering. They're wonderful examples. What psychology will do is it will focus on the problem areas, while it's actually quite reasonable to say, let's look at the ones that made it and see how they made it. Where does that disconnect? Why are we so grumpy about everything? Why do we always look at the negative of everything? Mo, this is a great example because it's so stark. So yes, teenage suicide levels are rising, anxiety levels are rising, depression levels are rising. And perhaps the main reason why they're rising is because we don't study those who are thriving and flourishing and doing well, because we can learn so much from them. And in fact, if you do a meta-analysis and you know, look at all the studies that have been conducted in this area and all the intervention programs, the intervention programs that have been successful are based on learning from what works. They go to these individuals who, despite unfavorable circumstances, who, despite hardships and difficulties, thrive and flourish. What do they do different? What is unique in their lives? And they learn from it, and then they apply it to the rest. So what is working now? Let's use that thinking. Yes. Yeah, so there are actually quite a few things that are working now. For example, one of the things that is working now, people are feeling closer and more intimate despite social distancing closer to one another, they're also feeling more appreciative of life and they're more appreciative of their loved ones. Yeah, they see the reality. They realize that life was not to be taken for granted, yeah? Exactly. You know, I often talk about, and I've written about this, about rhetorical choices. Now, what are rhetorical choices? It's uh, like rhetorical questions. Rhetorical question is where the answer is obvious. You say to a child, do you want me to be angry with you? Well, (laughs) no, no, no. I don't. I haven't decided yet. (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather, can you give me some time to think about this? Yeah, Yeah, but don't be angry. Just don't give me time and don't be angry yet. (laughs) (laughs) Just wait. Hold on that thought. So it's the same with uh, rhetorical choices. I ask you, so Mo, do you want to take the good things in your life for granted or do you want to appreciate them? It's a rhetorical choice. Yeah, of course, I want to appreciate. Most people take the good things in their lives for granted. When do they stop taking it for granted? When there is uh, a wrench in the wheel, when something goes wrong or can potentially go wrong. And this is happening now. And my hope is that it lasts beyond this current situation. After 9-11, some of my colleagues did research in New York City, and New Yorkers actually became more appreciative, kinder, more generous towards one another. It didn't last long. Six months later, back to where they were before, you know, business as usual. Yeah, I remember in my personal experience, if you remember the Arab Spring, of course, I never gave myself the right to participate. I was not living in the Middle East for a long time or in Egypt for a long time. But when Mubarak took himself off the dictatorship position, the next morning you would walk the streets and Egyptians were literally scrubbing 
the pavements, like literally with soap and brushes, scrubbing their country wow. to make it look so beautiful and so wonderful. And everyone was so happy and hugging and right, just sort of like we did this together. Let's make it beautiful. And then as you would expect over time, it sort of decays. One of your favorite talks that I've seen online is the one when you compare your New Year's resolution to a toothbrush. Why is it that we fall back into those habits? Tell us about that. Well, unfortunately and fortunately, it's embedded in human nature that we don't experience the same strong emotions over time. So when it comes to happiness, there is the hedonic treadmill idea that you win something or you, you publish a book or you get a, a promotion at work. Yeah, you're very happy. In fact, you may be even ecstatic. For how long? 12 minutes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. In most cases, there is even disappointment. What, that's it? Yeah. So that's the hedonic treadmill when it comes to pleasurable emotions. The same happens, fortunately, when it comes to painful emotions, uh, when we do recover to a great extent. So that is how we are built. It's our physiology and our psychology. And the question is, how can we prolong positive change? How do we not revert to business as usual within five minutes or even six months? And the answer lies in creating rituals, creating habits. You know, John Dryden, the British poet, wrote hundreds of years ago, he wrote, we first make our habits and then our habits make us. And, uh, you know, you talk about it. How do we create neural pathways that are quite literally second nature? It's like, you know, my mom doesn't need to remind me anymore to brush my teeth right? Been there, done that. Now I have to remind my kids. <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> and the question is, how do we create those habits also when it comes to things like appreciation, things like kindness and generosity? And this is the key question and the key objective of a field of happiness studies. You're saying, let's start with a positive focus, positive psychology's view of let's think of what works. And then when we find what works, let's ritualize that. So we make that happen like brushing your teeth twice a day. Are there practical ways to do that? Let's take this beautiful bond that we're starting to feel all of us. By being stuck at home, we're able to connect with others, be it remotely, but we can do that. Or let's take the positive impact we had on the planet. I mean, you walk outside and you can visibly see the birds are happier, the trees are happier, the air is cleaner and so on and so forth. How do we ritualize those? No, I think this is the question, Mo. How do you bring about lasting change as opposed to a honeymoon phase, so to speak? When I talk about change, I talk about the three R's of change. It's just a, a helpful heuristic. The first R of change is reminders. The second R of change is repetition. And the third R of change is rituals. So how does it work? We have those rhetorical choices in life. How do I ensure or at least uh, help me make the right decision when it comes to rhetorical choices? I need those reminders. And a reminder can be something like, on my smartphone, remind me every night before going to bed to express gratitude or to wear a bracelet, which I often wear to remind me of whatever it is that I want to do during a particular period. So for instance, uh, right now I'm wearing a bracelet to remind me to be more present because I did find that the news took me out of being present. So it's just each time I see it, oh, I need yeah, to. Yeah, that's my task. Yeah. 
Reminders can be about acts of kindness and generosity. Each time, you know, I see that reminder. And again, a reminder can be a picture on the wall. A reminder can be the bracelet. A reminder can be technology, whatever it is. So to have those reminders. Once I have those reminders, it means that I will commit to that action more regularly. I will express gratitude more regularly. I will be present more often. I will act more kindly. And through that repetition, that's when the ritual comes. Yeah, that's where the neuroplasticity kicks in. And yeah, Exactly right. Yeah. And the ritual then in that case is not just doing it, but doing it in a ritualized way. So like I wake up every morning and my first 25 minutes are going to be a date between me and my coffee machine and we're going to spend time. <laughs> I know it sounds simple, but of course being locked down, this is the longest I have ever been with that wonderful being that I call my coffee machine, right? So, <laughs> so I, I wake up every morning and we have that very tender conversation around which coffee I want today. And then I have my other 25 minutes of silence. And believe it or not, actually the coffee in my hand triggers the silence. So somehow my whole system works in an interesting way because it's become a habit. It's the habit of I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And especially the wake up time for me is very easy because it's sort of like you don't have other distractions in that case. The positive distractions are welcome, but the other noises and distractions are not. So are we similar when it comes to happiness? Are we all the same? Do the billionaires get happy differently than the working people? What's going on? When it comes to happiness, there are certain principles that are universal. The manifestation of these principles are different, person to person, culture to culture. You know, it reminds me a few years ago, there was a conference in India where the top scientists from Europe and the U.S. came and the Dalai Lama was there, his uh, right-hand men were there, and they were talking about happiness for a period of over five days. And day three comes and the Dalai Lama puts his hand up. <laughs> so nicely. Yeah. Yes, your highness, you can talk. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, you know, we've been here for three days and it's been really amazing and but I'm a little bit concerned because we've spent so much time talking about cultural differences. By the way, what mostly the, um, the North American and the European academics talked about it, how different collectivist, individualistic, how different well-being is in the East versus West. And he said, yes, there are cultural differences, but we're missing the main point. And the main point is that we're much more alike than we're different. And I take that point. I think he's spot on. You know, we all are looking for, um, for meaning and purpose in what we do. Whether you're in Swaziland or in Tokyo or in London or New Jersey, we're all looking for a sense of meaning. Now, what that meaning is, that's of course different for you, Mo, than it is for me, than that person in Swaziland or uh, Tokyo. Culture also matters. However, we all need relationships. Whether we're in a collectivistic communal society or a highly individualistic society, relationships are critical. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, there are, of course, individual differences, but the fundamentals, the basics, they're universal. And because they are, then maybe this is an invite for us to stop thinking that we're all so special after all, that at the end of the day, if I'm exactly like you, despite your life circumstances and how different they may be from mine, then perhaps we could 
be a little closer, right? We could connect a little better. I think this is probably something that we need so much in our world today. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is really the foundation of empathy. It breaks down when we're different, that when you're, oh, you're a different species, a different color, it's a different uh, race, it's a different culture. But when we realize that we really deep down, there are much more similarities than differences, empathy levels then are high. You know, we're on the same tribe. One of my most eye-opening experiences of my life, I'm Egyptian, born and raised in Egypt. Life has taken me places. And so when I started to run emerging markets at Google, Israel was still an emerging market at the time. And so I visited Israel for the first time in my life. I must have been in my mid-40s or something. And it was a monumental experience for me because I sat in that hotel in the morning, having breakfast, and suddenly I decided to do something which was to block my ears so I can't hear the language, which is a language difference, and just see the sights, look at the people, look at the kinds of food that were on the buffet and so on. And I swear to you, it literally felt like I was in Hilton in Cairo in Midtown. It was exactly the same. And then I was there for a speech. And then I started with that energy that I got in the morning, I started, which I have to admit, before that, I was afraid. I was like always been told Israelis are different and they're not our friends and so on. And then I walked through the city, walked through the event, spoke to everyone with that same energy of like, you're my Hilton Cairo Midtown. And it's so amazing. We're so the same, all of us. And we forget that because somehow we get told, no, no, they are different color, different background. It's just so stupid. Yeah, I really think, Mo, that one of the things that can bring people together is the field of happiness studies. Uh, I was, as you know, born and raised in Israel. And my colleagues and I, when I lived in Israel, we created a curriculum, a school curriculum. And that school curriculum was translated into Arabic. Yes. And because um, there are many... Yeah, absolutely. Lots of Arabic speaking, yeah. Yeah, whose first language is Arabic. And uh, first of all, obviously, a human being is a human being is a human being. It has an effect on uh, the Jewish, the Muslim, and Christian population equally. When they meet, this is the main point and the most beautiful point. When they meet, that's what they talk about. Exactly. They talk about well-being. They talk about happiness. When their parents meet, they talk about their children and their well-being. Yeah. We're much more alike than we're different. Yeah. And I think it would fix a lot of things. Let's go to hardship for a change because this is not an easy time. And even as we come out of COVID-19 and the lockdowns, there is a lot of new to deal with. I think there is a lot of resilience that is needed. What would be your top tips, top advice? Yeah. So the first thing I've been talking a lot recently about the idea of anti-fragility. So the idea of the anti-fragile, it's a term coined by Nassim Taleb, who's a New York uh, university professor. Who's brilliant. I am a huge fan. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, the the ideas that he comes up with are very disruptive. We're living in a black swan as we speak. Respect to Nassim Taleb. Yeah. It's interesting, just as an aside on a tangent, one of the rituals that we have as a family is every night we read together. You're not reading them, Nassim Taleb. That would really make the kids... (laughs) I'm not, but here is why I'm bringing this up in this. I'm reading them another Lebanese intellectual. That is uh, Khalil Gibran. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're reading, as we speak now, every half we read uh, at least one chapter. Amazing work. Of the Prophet. 
And again, he's also, you know, so insightful and really a, a prophet in, in many ways. So Nassim Taleb, I think, is a reincarnation, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were talking about anti-fragility. So anti-fragility is what I see as sort of resilience 2.0. Because, you know, resilience is the ability of a body to go back to its original form or a ball to bounce back. Anti-fragility is taking it a step further. And it's saying the ball doesn't just bounce back, it bounces higher. So it becomes better as a result of the pressure. And the example that he gives, which is very simple to understand, you go to the gym and you lift weights. You're stressing your system. As a result of that system, initially there is a slight breakdown, of course, but if you persist and have enough recovery over time, you grow stronger, you grow bigger, you grow healthier, you grow more resilient. That's anti-fragile, where stress, hardship leads to growth. And I think we are at a point where we have the opportunity to experience an anti-fragile process if we do things right. And it's a big, big if. There's a lot of talk in psychology about PTSD. In fact, when I teach a class and I have psychology students, I have uh, history majors. However, the largest minority in my class are psychologists. And I ask my students, okay, put your hand up if you have heard of PTSD. And 99% of the class, psychologists or not, put their hand up. They know what post-traumatic stress disorder. They've learned an intro to psych or they have read about it in the newspaper. And then I asked them a second question. And I said, put your hand up if you've heard of PTG. Only a handful, maybe, you know, less than 1% of the student actually put their hand up knowing what PTG. PTG is post-traumatic growth. Ah. You're as likely to experience PTG after a trauma as you are to experience PTSD. Now, one of the prerequisites or one of the um, conditions that increase the likelihood of experiencing PTG is knowing that PTG is an option. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, it exists. You look for it. Exactly. And most people don't know about it. Why? What is PTG? PTG is growing after a difficult experience. It's about experiencing anti-fragility. And yet so few people know about it. And we know what are the conditions that we need to put in place. Again, the first one is knowing about it and understanding that it's an option. The second is uh, relationships, the experience of closeness and intimacy, social support. And again, social support, ideally face-to-face, -face, but online is fine too. Making meaning of what we're going through, what we went through. This is very important in instituting rituals to increase meaning, to increase levels of gratitude. These are all conditions that we can need to put in place if we are to enhance, not ensure, but enhance the likelihood of PTG, post-traumatic growth. This is amazing. I have to admit to you, I never thought of it this way. So I normally talk about the idea that the worst moments of your life, wait 30 years, are always the best moments of your life. They're the moments that define you. And I, I do what I call the eraser test, where I tell people, take one very traumatic experience, and I will give you a technology to remove it from your life. Not remove it from your memory, but remove it from your lifeline. And basically, accordingly, remove everything that came as a result. And 99.99% of everyone I've surveyed will say, no, no, hold on, hold on. If it means that it will take away what I learned, my current personality, the friends that I made, and so on, 
I'll take that bully at school. I'll keep it. And it's so interesting when you say that we should focus on it and cultivate it. But I think people who have that, again, in one of your research, they are slightly different. The ones that can go through harshness with resilience and anti-fragility are people that have characteristics. I recall, for example, you spoke about there are people that are realistically optimistic. There are people that set goals and have role models and so on. Tell us a little bit about that, maybe as a closing remark for everyone coming out of our current situation. What is the attitude? What are the characteristics that give us this resilience and post-traumatic growth? Interesting, the first thing that I would talk about and recommend is really embracing, embracing the difficulty and the hardship rather than rejecting it. One of my favorite poems is Rumi's The Guest House. And uh, in that poem, Rumi talks about how we need to embrace, bring in all the emotions, the harsh ones and the pleasurable ones, the fun as well as the pain. Why? Because when we bring them in and embrace them, we learn from them and we grow with them. In contrast, when we reject painful emotions, and there's a lot of research on this, when we reject painful emotions, they only intensify and they overstay their welcome. So the first step is what I've come to call the permission to be human, accepting and embracing painful emotions rather than rejecting and fighting them. Now, that is just the first step. After we accept them, it doesn't mean, okay, well, I'm just going to vegetate in front of the TV and do nothing for the next (laughs) years. The first step is accepting, embracing these emotions, and then asking what is the most appropriate course of action. Exactly. Now, the most appropriate course of action may be to, you know, cry for another day or month. The most appropriate course of action may be to reframe my situation. The most appropriate course of action may be to go out with friends and... um, Discuss it or share it or talk to you. Or go out and dance, whatever works. But the first step is embracing, accepting the pain because it's natural in Buddhism and more recently in modern research, they talk about two levels of suffering. The first level of suffering is basically inevitable. The day-to-day experiences, whether it's the severe ones of loss or even the less uh, severe ones, uh, you know, was turned down from a publisher or... Yeah, feel rejected, whatever. Rejected. Yeah, these are, you know, natural and we don't feel great about these. And that's fine. This is the first level of suffering or pain. The second level comes when we reject that first level. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like adding insult to injury. Injury. That's exactly right. Now, the first level, we don't have a choice about. The second, we do have a choice about. And this is the choice that as much as possible, we need to make. Everyone listening, you now know why Tal is my role model. I adore you, man. I miss you a lot. Thank you so much for being here. I'll remind everyone, the media is your magnifying glass. It's not your looking glass. So choose your moments. There are things that you need to change in order to benefit from our post-traumatic growth. As we come out of the tough situations we're going through, we need to become anti-fragile. There are three ways three R's of change, as you said, Tal. So the idea of reminders, repetitions, and rituals. And uh, yeah, this was the podcast where we shared with you the three secrets of life. Reality, reality, and reality. (laughs) So (laughs) once again, Tal, it's always amazing. And I hope we meet soon. I do too. Thank you so much, Mo. If you want to follow Tal's work, and I think you absolutely should, Go to the happinessstudies.academy. This is where you will find all of Tal's work. And maybe it's about time to register for a happiness MBA. And for all of you who joined us, 
Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for MoGaudet, SlowMo, Solve for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.